Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. For our opening words this morning, I offer you David White's poem, The Winter of Listening. No one but me by the fire, my hands burning red in the palms while the night wind carries everything away outside. All this petty worry while the great cloak of the sky grows dark and intense round every living thing. All this trying to know who we are and all this wanting to know exactly what we must do. What is precious inside us does not care to be known by the mind in ways that diminish its presence. What we strive for in perfection is not what turns us into the lit angel we desire. What disturbs and then nourishes has everything we need. What we hate in ourselves is what we cannot know in ourselves, but what is true to the pattern does not need to be explained. Inside everyone is a great shout of joy waiting to be born. And here, in the tumult of the night, I hear the walnut above the child's swing swaying its dark limbs in the wind, and the rain now come to beat against my window. And somewhere, in this cold night of wind and stars, the first whispered opening of those hidden and invisible springs that uncoil in the still summer air each yet-to-be-imagined rose. Beneath the snow, beneath the soil, inside us, out in the universe, all around there are unknown connections that feed the strivings of life. There's so much we don't know. Aware of these mysteries and the wonder of the unseen, committed not to uncovering all, but to deeply understanding the value of not knowing it all, we gather together this morning. Every Sunday when we come together in this space, we make a special time for silence, for acknowledging the stuff of our own lives and the stuff that is out in the world. We do this because we know that our lives afford precious little time for stillness, for silence, and for reflection, and because we know that these things are necessary to the health of our hearts and minds and souls. We know that being together in this way helps to strengthen our community and strengthen us as we move out into the world. So I invite you now into our time of meditation. You can settle your body into your seat. Close your eyes if that feels comfortable. Take a slow, deep breath and try to relax your body. I want first to acknowledge in this time, the death of a longtime member of this congregation, Bob Zappa, died earlier this week. Our thoughts are with his family and friends as they grieve. Take a deep, slow breath. In this season of joyfulness, of welcoming the stranger and honoring the light and waiting with hope 
for a single moment that might change the world in this season of celebration we are aware even more poignantly of those who suffer we remember this morning that just earlier this week a young girl died in detention at our borders We remember that clergy of many faiths were arrested as they protested our nation's treatment of immigrants and asylum seekers. And we remember that all around this world, there is hardship and fear, confusion and sorrow. Yet even as we know these things, even as we grieve these truths, we know too the truth that there are those around the world working hard to create justice. Those offering healing. Those speaking out against oppression and violence. Those who increase the compassion and love in this world. All our lives, we will know a combination of sorrow and joy, of grief and celebration. The cycles of our earth and our living give us the opportunity to honor both. As we move into late December, we are offered a time to celebrate. And so we sit here, side by side, held by this place and these people, remembering all the compassion and love, kindness and care, gentleness and truth that we are privileged to know and to celebrate. In the silence, we remember. May we always be grateful for the joys and wonders that balance our lives. And may we always celebrate the relationships that sustain our complex living. So may it be. Amen. In college, my peers and I had to complete three classes in three different areas as part of our requirements. There were other requirements, including a gym requirement. But this one, about these three different areas, was designed to make us well-rounded academically. I was fine in two of the sections. My majors had the social sciences and the humanities covered. That left the math and science requirement. I took Physics 100, affectionately known as Physics Fun 100. Yeah. Uh, something called Biology of the Tropics, the spring of my senior year at the last possible moment. And then the third class I took was Oceanography. That was my favorite. Our <laughs> Our teacher taught us many fascinating things. I'm happy to share more about them in coffee hour. But the one thing I do want to talk about this morning that she taught us about was the deepest parts of the ocean, including the Mariana Trench, which if I had heard of it before that class, I certainly didn't remember having heard about it. The Mariana Trench is the deepest known part of the ocean. It's off the coast of China in the Pacific Ocean, and it is over 1,500 miles long. Its width is on average only about 43 miles, but its maximum depth is about 6.831 miles. 
that's hard to sort of conceptualize. Um, so I'm gonna try to explain. It is deeper than if you inverted Everest into the ocean. It's deeper than how high we fly in planes. When you go down 3,000 feet, the ocean is already in complete darkness. And Challenger Deep, which is the smallest spot um, that's that 6.831 miles deep, Challenger Deep is 10 times deeper than that initial zone of total darkness. It's very far down. The pressure of the water above is a thousand times the pressure of the atmosphere that we experience at sea level, okay? Down there, in that deepest spot of the ocean, there is a very little bit of life that you can detect with the naked eye. A few years ago, the director, James Cameron, manned a sub down into Challenger Deep. You can find footage of that online. I highly recommend it. So there are some things down there you can see with the naked eye. Sea cucumbers, these shrimp-like creatures, some weird sand animals. But there's a whole bunch of microbial activity, according to scientists, that we can't see but is down there, activity that is supporting the life that is above. And if you go up just a little bit from that deepest part, you'll see these strange luminescent creatures that light their own way in the darkness. They look like something from a different planet entirely, and they may well re resemble prehistoric creatures. They exist completely outside of our day-to-day -day understanding of our oceans, completely outside of our ability to see them without really intense technological intervention. The deepest recorded fish, a snailfish, was recorded at about 26,000 feet. The deepest scuba dive, so assisted diving, ever recorded was just under 1,100 feet. So there's so much down in the ocean that we don't know. It's this whole system, a whole world of creatures we know very little about that we would hardly even recognize as living beings and that we have so much to learn about. There are connections between those deepest places and us. Its existence is part of our larger ecosystem and who knows what would happen if a deep disturbance went on down there. As dark and inhospitable and unknown as the Mariana Trench is, it's a vital part of our world. It reminds us of the mystery that surrounds us. <clears throat> Some years ago, I learned from my then director of religious education, Jane Podell, about this thing called the subnivian layer. Has anyone heard of this, or did you Google it after you saw the title for today's service? Essentially, when there's a deep enough snow, a layer gets formed underneath the snow and above the ground. Barbara McKay, a naturalist in Vermont, writes this. The subnivian zone begins to form with the first snowfall that lingers. Two things happen. First, some of the snow lands directly on hardy vegetation and overhanging rocks, blocking snow from accumulating underneath. At the same time, the snow that lands on the ground sublimates, that is, changes from a solid into a gas without going through the melting stage. All that's necessary to create this zone is a six-inch snow. And in it, in this zone, small mammals have a whole world to live in, with what amounts to a roof above their heads of the snowpack. If you add a couple inches to that six inches, the insulation effect is so strong that the temperature in the subnivian zone 
remains at about 32 degrees, give or take a degree, no matter how cold it gets in the outside world. So down inside this layer is a whole habitat. Again from McKay, the most elaborate contain a sleeping area, a breakfast nook, a food cache corner, and a latrine. Long, narrow tunnels connect everything. For convenience, most tunnels begin where there's a tree trunk, large rock, or thick bush. These dark surfaces can also absorb solar heat, helping to moderate the temperature of the animals, the plants, and the ground itself. In my reading, I also learned the entrance holes near these rocks, trees, and bushes act as ventilation holes, allowing in the oxygen the creatures need. And down there, they can survive because, although it might be surprising, enough light actually filters through that snowpack, that six to eight inch snowpack, into the zone to allow for the plants to survive, giving the mice and the voles and the chipmunks something to munch on. When the snowpack eventually thaws, you can see evidence of the tunnels, whole tracks of eaten away grass and bushes stripped to the level of the snowpack. I was so intrigued by this when I first learned of it, that beneath the thick, solid snow, there's this whole world of activity we don't see, we can't hear, not unless we want to dig a deep hole into the snow to watch it. That world of activity sustains itself through the cold winter until the spring when it comes back to the surface. The snow is providing protection. And we know this is so with seeds as well. What appears to be a time of cold that renders the earth barren is really just a time of waiting and restoration. Plants will take that time to break down protein and to nurture their, their cell membranes. And when they've been in enough cold, a protein gets triggered and they reactivate. Seeds planted in the winter are often aided by the snow because it pushes them down deeper into the soil. In our human imaginings, winter seems lifeless, but there's so much we don't see that goes on. It reminds us of the mystery that surrounds us. There's also a mystery with the trees. Had any of you heard about this before, that trees communicate? Has anyone seen this? Okay. They have these root systems that work to support each other, and they can let each other know about impending drought or pests. They let each other help each other. There's a fungal network down there among the roots that some have called the wood wide web. <laughs> I know, everybody loves a pun. I am not a scientist, so bear with me, but essentially there are fungi that have these tubes that go into the soil and lace up with the roots of the plants at the level of their cells. Scientists believe that this twirling on the cellular level is actually ancient, like 400 million plus years old ancient. The network allows for some of what our reading described. There's a symbiotic relationship between plants and fungi. They benefit from each other's nutritional cast-offs, but it allows also the trees to care for each other. They can send the nutrients through this network of fungi. They can encourage the growth of young plants, thus keeping the whole system healthier. They can indicate those oncoming pests. There was actually a study in which they infected one part of a network with a pest and then waited a little bit and tried to infect the other side, and it was twice as hard to infect the other part of the network because it had been pre-warned. We had no idea about all of this until relatively recently. It was hypothesized in the 1970s, but we didn't have any confirmation until these last couple of years. An article from the BBC explains this network as 
similar in some ways to the network in the James Cameron movie Avatar. You've seen this movie? It's from 2009, it's been a while, but it largely takes place on this heavily forested moon on which the trees and all living organisms are connected via this network. It turns out that he might not have been as far off as it seemed. Plants on this planet are connected by a system that we can't see. Their roots reach out and join together and share information and resources. But it doesn't just allow for a sort of community-centered care that benefits all. It seems to also allow for something more affective. A reading described how a stump from a tree long since dead could be sustained by this mysterious network that exists under the soil, beneath what we see and understand. It's not unlike that subnivian layer, though this unseen world of activity never really surfaces, except in flashes that we humans rarely take the time to stop and register, like bark that looks like stone. Down beneath the soil is a whole magical world. Merlin Sheldrake is a scientist who works on this network in England, and he explains it this way. You could imagine the fungi themselves as forming a massive underground tree or as a cobweb of fine filaments, acting as a sort of prosthesis to the trees, a further root system, extending outwards into the soil, acquiring nutrients and floating them back to the plants as the plants fix carbon in their leaves and send sugar to their roots and out into the fungi. And this is all happening right under our feet. Part of what's happening down there is a community. A community is being built and cared for in ways that we would never have imagined plants doing. It reminds us of the mystery that surrounds us. The subnivian layer is a temporary winter state of affairs. The world, wood wide web, can't even say it, is a permanent and ancient way for trees to communicate. The microbial community of the Mariana Trench is a permanent ecosystem that supports the ones above. But all three speak to the ways that there is so often more going on than we realize that our human eyes and ears can only detect so much. Our second reading by Chet Ramo speaks to our human need and desire to understand so much more than we are able to at first blush. This need is why we send submersibles down into the reaches of the ocean. It's why we dig deep holes in the snow. It's why we search the far reaches of the heavens and scrape at material that looks like stone but is actually bark. We want to understand. We want to name and classify and number and grasp the wholeness of what is. <coughs> but the Ramo reading also speaks to the very real truth that all around us are so-called rabbit holes containing more information and mystery than we can possibly understand. What we know, he says, is an island in a sea of mystery. He describes laying beneath the stars and realizing that each one represents the vast unknown. When it dawns on us all the things we don't know, it can feel overwhelming, but I think we can also see it as an invitation, an invitation to wonder, and I think an invitation to move deeply and more trustingly into the unseen mysteries of existence, including the mysteries of ourselves and our fellow humans. Because we don't know, what we don't know isn't limited to the natural world around us. <coughs> we can't know another person simply by looking at them or even just listening 
There's more to the interiority of others than we can understand by our sheer will to understand. There's more to the ways we connect and are connected as humans than we can fully comprehend. Our seventh principle speaks to that piece, the interdependent web of which we are a part. We can't perfectly explain the web, but we have this sincere belief that it exists. That sincere belief matters so much right now because so many seem not to share it. This past week has shown once again that currently our nation, or at least some of its leadership, has abandoned faith in the connections of humanity. I mentioned that small child, that seven-year-old girl, who died while in custody of our federal government. She died of dehydration and shock. She was here because her family brought her to try and give her a better life in this country. This country that's filled with people who have that same story of leaving behind all they know and trying to build something better. That same story of faithful journeys. We've broken trust with the connections of humanity. We have broken faith with the best self of our nation. We who believe deeply in the unseen and unknown connection of all beings, we who believe deeply that there is more than can be known by looking, we must do the work of living that belief all the time, consistently, starting in our own lives. We have to vote with that belief, protest with that belief. I think it is a hard thing in this moment to trust in those underneath layers of mystery. And it's hard to know how to nourish and cultivate our own mysterious connections, but it is so vital. And I think we start by recommitting always to the connections in our lives, the ones we are building, letting ourselves weave those fine filaments with the people around us, then caring for those connections, celebrating and grieving together and not abandoning each other. I think we do it also by reminding ourselves always, often right here on Sunday mornings, that our lives are not fully our own. They have an impact on others. The death of one small child has an effect on us. It reflects on us. We are responsible together for the young sapling and the ancient stump. We commit to the connections. We refuse to isolate ourselves and others. We keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds open. These are some of the ways that we begin to rebuild trust in what we can't see but we know to be true. These next weeks will fly by as we move toward Christmas and New Year's, and it'll be really easy to get caught up in celebration and to forget the heart of what it means to welcome the stranger who arrives at our door unbidden and in need. It'll be so easy to forget the lesson, to trust in a star and in mysteries we may never understand. It'll be very easy to forget what it means truly to affirm new beginnings and the possibilities inherent in communities of openness and commitment. But all of that is what the holidays actually call us to and invite us to remember. So, may your celebrations be so wonderful that you are indeed tempted to forget, but may your faith be strong enough that you do not. Sonati. Please join in the words for extinguishing our chalice. They're printed in the order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of love, or the energy of action. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again.
The world is full of wonders. May you catch glimpses of them each day. And may your heart know their truth even when you can't see them. Go in peace.